Namaste. Welcome to Call and Response Podcasts with Krishnadas, where he shares meaningful stories of his life on the path, of his Guru Maharaji, and integrating spiritual practice into our everyday lives. Call and Response Podcasts is an offering of the Kirtanmala Foundation. The foundation is dedicated to spreading the teachings of Neem Karoli Baba, a great spiritual teacher of India. If you are interested in supporting this podcast and the work of the foundation, please visit kirtanwalafoundation.org, K-I-R-T-A-N-W-A-L-L-A-H foundation.org. So practice, you got to do practice, I'm sorry, you just have to. With our eyes open and our hearts open. But through a practice, you're, you're, you get used to coming back from being gone. It's more like an ability to let go. Uh, yes. You said something about good health is... Hard to find? Yeah, that's true. The joy of your, all of your cells living in harmony, something along those lines. I didn't yes, get yes, it down that's right. right. That's it? Yes, your life force, your health is joy and bliss in your system. Okay. It's the, it's the nature of reality in your system, asserting itself in your system. Because okay. this is the new, the new orientation we're cultivating, is that reality is joy. Right. Love is joy. Because love means the wish to make the, to the wish for the happiness of the beloved, is what love means in these traditions. And um, how can it help, how can it wish to have happiness for, for the beloved if it doesn't have happiness itself? Right? In other words, okay? Without you making this, you know, a story rather than a question, um, this has meant a lot. My husband has stage four lung cancer. And yes. he has gone past his expiration date. He's supposed to be dead now. But he gets out there and he walks the dog every day. And then he goes and he rides the exercise bike for 70 minutes. And it makes him happy. And he comes home happy. Right. And the doctors are saying, well, it's your physical health that's keeping you alive. And that, that one statement, just kind of like, whoa, it's not just the, it, it's the attitude. And, and thank you all. Okay. Okay. <sighs> Could you just say a few more sentences about what I asked you during the break um, when we were, we were talking about, you know, going through the transformation of this life to the next life. And yes. I know in Buddhism that you can come back as everybody's mother or you can come back as a flea or you can come back as a preta. Yeah. Um, and my thought is if you're being reborn in the human realm, you're here already having some compassion. So it would appear to me that you would want to, people would naturally continue in a higher state. So how do people fall back so they're in that cyclical of going down again? Uh, well, I think the traditional religious uh, interpretations about that tend somewhat, oh, that's really interfering with your head. <laughs> well, okay, we, we have to get that a little bit away. It's terrible. Okay. Okay. So, so uh, they tend to overemphasize the danger of deteriorating in one's, in one's um, embodiment. 
and uh, which connects to, which is I think they overdo that, I think. And this connects to the fact that they so much appreciate the evolutionary achievement of becoming human because it's really extraordinary, you know, the way that the Buddhist biologists would see, for example, how you would move from being a tigress or a lioness um, toward some less violent embodiment would be that lioness that was waiting, chasing the herd of antelopes and saw a really juice, slow-moving pregnant one, really juicy, and sort of all like puffed up, you know, from being pregnant, and then had a subliminal sense of identification because of having, having had pups itself, herself, and then decided to let it go and swerved and jumped on a stringy, old, disgusting, hobbling, old, much less delicious one, but enough to feed herself and her family. So how many tigresses, lionesses would have such a impulse, such an empathetic impulse based on not having watched any nature movies on PBS. And um, so that kind of thing, that then leads one to uh, want to evolve into a more gentle level of being that uh, actually as a lioness you would think uh, some weird hairless, furless, two-fangless, clawless animal like a human who can't even go on all fours might be a bring down for a, like a wild predator, you know. So they consider that to be, those transitions to be so difficult to rise in the, toward more gentleness in embodiment, they consider the human being very gentle, that they then want to emphasize to the human uh, like the danger of going, falling back and how hard it would be to get back. But I think they overdo it because I think that the, the non-enlightened person who takes rebirth based on being driven by instincts, the human being, the only the very rare one is going to fall in love with the female rhinoceros and want to enter her womb, I think. Uh, that would be an unusual one. Or, or to, to enter a beetle's egg, they would have had to really identify with their Volkswagen in their life. <laughs> to feel attracted to a female beetles, like uh, dung beetles, like egg sac or whatever it would be. So, so I think they would tend to be attracted toward a human, you know? And, uh, and I think that's more like it, you know? Even the, the one who's still the victim and driven by lust, you know, I think they'd lust for what they're used to thinking is attractive, you know? So let's hope that's the case. To use our, we have to use our imagination, you know, to, to realize that we do live in a sci-fi world. We really do. In the, in the Buddhist sutras, when people would, would uh, when the Buddha would give teachings in the Mahayana sutras, there was usually a parking problem because beings would come from other universes by mental projection in their subtle body forms, and they would sometimes come in giant towers of bodhisattvas in some of the more elaborate sutras, 
and then they have to park these towers around, you know, and then they would be attending. So there'd be. I, I was the parking attendant. You were parking where? I was the parking attendant at one of those. You might have been. We I think we do. And uh, That's so how that I got mean, here. the idea of like life on other planets, you know, to us, you know, this is such a huge thing. Carl Sagan is out there. There's these big antennas down in Chile, like sending out Beatles music and waiting to hear like back some Mozart, you know, or someplace in Al Aldebaran or something. It's like the idea that we're the only ones in this like huge thing. We're, we're, we're a tiny little peripheral little thing, you know, in the Vimalakirti Sutra. People get hungry at lunchtime or before lunchtime. The free lunch people especially got hungry because the afternoon they can't eat. And then he sends out for takeout at the incense Buddha's universe. Beyond as many other universes as grains of sand in 62 Ganges riverbeds, he sends out an emanation bodhisattva for takeout. And he comes back and brings back a bunch of incense rice, and then he feeds thousands of people. Was I mean, it, was it vegetarian? Is, it's very, very sci-fi. Is what I'm trying organic? to say. Organic? It was organic. Hell yes. <laughs> so that's the Indian imagination. It's amazing, you know, because they weren't all being beaten up all the time, you know. So they were allowed to have, have fantasies, you know. Okay. So <clears throat> let's. Order takeout now. <laughs> this is our order. We're putting in our order right now. Okay. We're putting in our order. Okay. Absolutely. With mantra. That's the Take way you out. put up the order. Very good. Okay. So, Ashtanga Yoga, eight limb yoga, right? Maharaji used to say, that the Westerners were only qualified for the five-limbed yoga, which is gup, gumne, kane, pine, and sone. Gup is gossiping. Gumne is wandering around. Kane is eating. Pine is drinking. And sone is sleeping. This is what we were qualified for. And he said things, you know, it's better to love everybody than to try to figure it out. So uh, that's what I come back to, really, you know. And many times he would say to the Westerners, and to all of us, any all of his devotees, he would say, Ram Nam Karne Se Ho Jate. From repeating these names of God, everything is accomplished. Everything is brought to fullness and completion. And the implication being that through this practice, uh, and also Hanuman is a very unusual being in many ways. And there's a Sanskrit sloka that I don't remember, uh, but I remember the meaning. And it said that not only does Hanuman bestow liberation, but he makes it possible for us on the way to satisfy the desires that we need to satisfy in order to get along with our work. It's not a renunciate path in any way, shape, or form in terms of the traditional monkey-monk path. The monkey-monk path. And um, so, yeah. He encouraged us to love everyone, serve everyone, and remember God, which is to do the 
repeat the names of God, Japa, Ramna. Yeah. I always wanted him to tell me what to do, you know, give me a, some, like, practice, some mantra, some this that I could do, you know, but he was never, he never encouraged us to do spiritual practice for our, the sake of our own spiritual benefit, so to speak. He said, think about others. And really, I tell you the truth, I didn't get it. You know, I think, what is he talking about? What do you mean, think about others? What about me? <laughs> Takes a while to get with the program, really, it does. And the tradition that Bob is so steeped in of, of compassion, the bodhisattva path, it's all about that. You know, there's only one of us in the whole universe, and until all of us are happy, then essentially we are not fully happy on one level. On the other level is a real bodhi, true bodhisattva has found that happiness and they stay here for our sake. Their only agenda is compassion. They don't have any, there's nothing they need anymore other than our happiness. Yeah. When we're talking about all these techniques, I remember Mr. Tawari, who was one of Maharaji's great devotees. He was a real, a great yogi, and uh, he's incredible. And he was totally in the world. He was a school teacher, and then he became the headmaster of a very prestigious school. I, I would go stay with their family for long periods of time, and I would sleep in the same bed as he, and Mrs. Tawari would go sleep with the kids. And Mr. Tawari would get up like at 3.30 in the morning, he'd go pee, he'd come back into the bed, sit up, and he'd go, boom. And that was it for like three or four hours until tea time. He'd be just, boom, you know. I would wake up at 3.30, go pee, get back into bed, go back to sleep. Not once in 30 years did he ever say to me, you know, don't you think you should meditate? <laughs> Not once. He, it was like, you know, I kicked myself now. I could have said, Baba, how do you do that? You know, I remember, and I've told this story before, but <clears throat> I had heard a part of a prayer once with the words, Narayaninamostute. I bow to the goddess, I bow to Narayani, I bow to you, Narayani. And uh, so I asked him if he ever heard this prayer. Oh, yes. I said, really? Oh, yes. Would you teach it to me? Oh, okay. So we sat down, and uh, he restarted to recite the prayer, and I was trying to write it down, you know, as he was, he was going slow, and I was writing, and he just kind of started speeding up, and his eyes closed, and it was, it went on for about 15 minutes. It was a long prayer, and he knew it all by heart. And by the end, I mean, he was just, at the end, he was just, oh, I'm not lying, oh, I'm not lying. Oh. 
he went into samadhi. He just left. And tears, he wasn't breathing, you understand? Not breathing. And tears were streaming down his cheeks. It really pissed me off. Yeah, I mean, I couldn't get a taste of this to save my miserable life. And he couldn't stay out of it long enough to teach me one miserable prayer. So then Mrs. Tawari comes into the living room to get the teacups. We've been drinking tea, I think. And I said, Ma, look. What's, what, when, what's, when's he going to come back? And she picked up the teacups. She just smiled at me and said, don't know. <laughs> Went back into the kitchen, you know, leaving me with this crying corpse. But he wasn't even, you understand, he was not trying. You, you get that? He was just, he just got, he's just, the love was so strong that he just disappeared into it or appeared into it, depending on how you look at it. He wasn't trying to go anywhere. He wasn't trying to go into samadhi. And, and of course, I can't say what his, from his point of view, what his experience was, but I definitely saw that, you know, the purity of that love, the intensity of that love just carried him so deep within. So, how do we, how do we, how does that happen, you know, for us? It's a long way from Mickey Mouse to Rama. And we grow up with that, you know, believing in nothing, basically, you know. It's really interesting. We're, we're programmed right from day one that me is the only thing important and uh, we, that there's just essentially nothing really to, un, to, to find. Nothing's possible. And we've got to scrounge out whatever little pleasure we can in life and then that's it, boom, you're dead. So to transform all those programs, to pull the energy out of those programs so we can learn to feed our hearts. It's a big thing. It was funny when I was with Sokni Rinpoche, when I was with Sokni Rinpoche at his mm -hmm. retreat and he had asked me to sing at this retreat where he was going to teach about devotion for the first time. He was talking about, he started to talk about his guru. And the minute he started to talk about his guru, he started to cry. He could not cry. He couldn't hold the tears back. And he would say, you know, I could never take my eyes off my guru, I, I wanted to be with him. And then he would look at 
the people in there said, but not you, not with me. <laughs> he said, don't do that with me. <laughs> so, talk, can, can you tell me a little bit about what role devotion would play in that, on, in the Vajrayana path, on the Tibetan path? Uh, well, I think devotion comes from gratitude. Um, from the guru teaching, sharing his awareness in some way through words, and all imperfectly as words do. And then where, when one has a new vision of the world, and one sees that exemplified in the guru, then there is a feeling of gratitude toward the guru, and then great devotion, I think, arises from that, I think, basically. I think that although the, there's a whole thing called the reliance on the guru, and um, devotion initially, respect and service to the guru are considered important, but the most important way of expressing devotion is to realize the teaching that the guru gives and to embody it in your own life. The guru, precisely what your Rinpoche there said, not to me, don't do that sort of thing. The idea that just sort of going goggle-eyed at the guru is going to get you there is not actually it, you know. That's just, uh, and, and even, you know, the Zen thing, you know, if you meet a Buddha in the road, kill him. The idea being that if you exemplify, if you think that the guru represents everything that you want to be, and that, and therefore solidify your sense of you're not being that, hmm. then that, then, then the guru, the relationship with the guru is not helping you. And uh, kill him just simply means it doesn't mean harm some person you meet, but it means, it means don't reify or deify the guru, because what he wants you to do is to embody yourself as that same mm -hmm. thing, you know. Yeah. Like actually, my original Guru Gishwamal used to always say when he would teach me or he would scold me or whatever it was, he would always say, this is not just for you, it is, you know, because you, I want you to be, through you to be helping many people. You, you are supposed to do something for many other people. That kind of thing. He would constantly, constantly harp on that point. Mm -hmm. And... Uh, and then, if you do get some glimpse of the more beautiful world or the beauty of the world that is there, that you somehow, when it's that kind of beauty that you see, and when you see it, you realize it was always there right in front of you, but you didn't notice it, you didn't, you didn't embrace it, you didn't let go of whatever you, your idea was to really let it make a new, surprise you, uh, you know, mm -hmm. be a miraculous event to you. And when you did that, and that would be so, you would feel so delighted and you would feel so grateful that someone had helped you open that door within yourself, that you would then, of course, be devoted to that person. Mm. Very, very much so. Yeah. But again, that again, even your devotion is most best expressed by your helping others in that same way, in some way. You know? Yeah. Really. And uh, there's one other thing that's kind of interesting, which is the, the thing about sort of advanced practice and all this kind of thing. The, the Dalai Lama 
when he does a big initiation, you know, a grand initiation of some kind, he often says at some point, he has there's like a preliminary, you know, prerequisite or preliminary teaching that he gives. And then at different points, especially after he finishes that, or even after finishing the whole thing, he says, ha ha, he says, I tricked you. <laughs> I tricked you all, he said, because you wouldn't have come here for this preliminary teaching. You only came because of the high initiation. But that, you might not even be able to use that. That might be too difficult for you. But what was really helpful to you was the preliminary. <laughs> but you wouldn't have come to study the preliminary. Yeah. You only come because you want the big initiation. I'm going to be like that, blah, 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 yeah, blah. Yeah. No, I'm going to be like that, you know, dancing Shiva or something. You yeah, know? Right. Oh, yes, we're going to be dancing Shiva. Oh, yes. Yeah, we used to, in the old days, in, huh? India, in India, in the old days, we, we would always try to go to those the wongs, the real, you know, the big teachings, yeah, know. you know. The real, well, they are very magical. Yeah, they really, are. They really feel something is really happening. You get like a yeah. boing. Yeah. And then you go kick the dog. No, no, what? Then you go kick the dog. Well, yeah, people do. Yeah. People do. Some people do. Some people but do. But not necessarily. Yeah. Not everyone. Anyway, <laughs> anyway, that's the thing. So, so yes, the, 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 the guru, you know, uh, they say that uh, the guru in Tantra especially, actually in, the, in regular Buddhism, the guru role is diminished on purpose by Buddha. And the teacher is called Kalyana Mitra. And Mitra means a friend, and Kalyana means a virtue or goodness, you know, the goodness friend. And so the idea is that the patriarchal father figure in the family, which, which is the model a little bit in India of the guru as the authority father, and the word guru even meaning the heavy. Now, this is actually a little bit discouraged because they don't want that kind of devotion of dependency like a child to a parent necessarily. That's not, I mean, that's not that helpful to the person from the Buddhist point of view where, where the person has to a little bit rebel about authority to find their, bring out their own insight actually. But then in Tantra, it re reconnects a little bit because Tantra, is it very advanced and therefore at that point the person what is necessary is something to bridge the gap between one's concept of oneself as an ordinary person which becomes an excuse at that point like i'm so ordinary i can't do this or i can't practice that or i can't do the other and uh, and uh, the gap is bridged in the person of the guru and so they say things like well the ten thousand buddhas of the golden era are nothing to me compared to the guru and um, there's a famous story about Marpa, the teacher of Milarepa, when he, at one point, he was looking for his guru, Naropa, great Siddha, great adept, Naropa. And he found him finally on a second trip to India or something, and he found him somewhere in some jungle, on some mountain. And there was Naropa standing there, you know, in his loincloth, you know, like typical Sadhu Siddha guy. And then next to him was a giant Hevajra, male, female dancing in a ring of fire, you know, it looks a little bit like Shiva Nataraj, but uh -huh. has a female uh -huh. connected around him, you know, uh -huh. and multiple heads and arms and things like that. Uh -huh. Like really like, wow. What know? do you mean you see next to him? A, a murti right or, him, or the real uh, thing? Standing there, you know, oh, yeah, like just, a great yeah. Hevatra. I see. So yeah. then Mar Narapa says to Marpa, well, who do you bow to, me or the Yidam? 
the Ishta Devata, you know, the, the Ishta Devata, chosen the, the Devata. And he said, oh, I see you all the time, man. I'm about to dance <laughs> Shiva here. Whoa! <laughs> Big mistake. Yeah. Big, Big mistake. mistake. As he's yeah. bowing, the, the form of the Shiva just withdraws back into a pore of the, on the Whoa. body of the Siddha. You know. Oh, oh. You know. Yeah. Just, just, you know, the guru, everything is in the guru, you know. And even, even there was one where Milarepa, my favorite one is Milarepa and Rechumba. And Milarepa was, uh, was, met Rechumba who'd been to India and he met lots of gurus in India and he had some special books, you know. And he was coming back and he was like, and then when he saw Milarepa, who was always naked, you know, Milarepa was always naked. He, he, had, he had a little white sheet, you know. Not Donald Trump's followers white sheet, yeah. <laughs> but just a little white skirt you know, he would occasionally wear. And then he, he was looking at him like, oh, my Tibetan guru is kind of funky. Like, gee, you know, I was down in India. I met some of the real guys. <laughs> and he was a little bit proud, you know. So then Miller, and he said, okay, great. Miller realized he was a little proud. So then Miller and he are walking across a, a plane. He takes him out really where there's no shelter. Yeah. And then Miller conjures a thunderstorm. Mm. And the thunderstorms soak all his books and all of them and soak him, yeah. Rechuba. Meanwhile, Milarepa is quite dry and then he disappears when the thunderstorm, Milarepa does. And Rechuba says, Mila, Mila, where are you? Guruji, where'd you go? And then he hears this little voice, I'm down here, come on in, it's dry here. And then he looks down and then Milarepa has miniaturized himself and he's inside a, an, a, an old yak horn that's lying on the ground. <laughs> and he's sitting dry. in there all dry. You know? <laughs> and come on in, you know. Yeah. Oh, oh, you can't miniaturize? Oh, they didn't teach you that in India? <laughs> oh. Says, so oh, that's okay, we'll dry you out. You know? So then the storm is over, then they go over. Then Milarepa makes a little fire with twigs and things. And he says, well, listen, you go get some water and we'll make tea. And meanwhile, we'll make a fire here and we'll dry out your books and stuff. So then he goes to get the water. And then on the way, he sees a herd of goats. The first is just a couple. And then they, you know, they, they mate and then they produce more goats. And then they mate, produce more goats. And he has this vision of like all these goats, like a huge herd. It becomes just like fascinated with this. It's like a nature movie, you know, like goats multiplying. Discovery Channel. Instantly, you know. Yeah. And so he gets lost there and stays there for some time. And then he goes and gets the water and comes back. When he comes back, Mila is cheerfully burning the books. <laughs> what? You burned my books? He's so mad, you know. And then he remembered, well, I didn't mean to burn them. Mila said, I was just drying them out. And then I saw some, and you brought some weird books, not very good, polluting types. Some, some of them are okay, I, I love some, but some, those are no good, so I'm just relieving you of those. And he just became furious, you know. Mm -hmm. And then there's a long sequence of things where, where Miller keeps performing these miracles. And he, he says, oh, you had a book on this and that tantra? Well, here, I have that tantra. And then he, then he goes like this, and, and uh, he looks in, and his chest becomes transparent, and he sees the mandala of that deity in his, in his heart chakra. Uh -huh. And the deities are all in there in miniature, and they're playing music, and they're chanting, Ram, Ram, I don't know what, Buddha, Buddha, Mani Pema, home, something. And he sees it in his guru's heart, and I don't care, that's a trick. And finally, he has, like, he has, he has mandalas in every chakra up and down his body, and his body uh -huh. is transformed. Still doesn't reconcile himself. You burn my books, you know. Wow. It's really pissed off. 
So finally, you know, Miller says, well, okay, I'm sorry, you know, and he flies away. He, he turns himself into a vulture and flies away. Miller says, I don't care, you can vulture, get out of here, I'm going to burn my boat. And then he leaves, and then suddenly he has a change of heart, he repents, mm. and then he so throws himself off a cliff. He's so upset. Oh. Reminds me of you in the stream. Mm. He's so upset <laughs> because he was mad at his guru. And then he flings himself off the cliff. Wow. And, then, and then he lands this little terrace right below, about one inch below. And he clunk, <laughs> he lands on the terrace. And then suddenly, Milarepa, there are five Milarepas right in front of him oh. who produced this place to catch him. Uh -huh. And going, yeah, yeah, you couldn't even mm -hmm. kill yourself. Mm -hmm. He says, and so finally, okay, okay, I'm sorry. You know, like, that's, uh, yeah. it goes on like that. You know? yeah. That's my favorite. It really is outstanding. Although a lot of times he says, oh, books, you don't need books here. And he sticks out his tongue. And a stream of Sanskrit and Tibetan letters come flowing out of his tongue. And then they form themselves into all texts all around, like a huge wow. dome filled with texts. So he says, you have all the books right in your heart. He says, yeah. Yeah. He says, oh, that's a trick. You're just, oh, you burn my books. You <laughs> completely good. Thank you so much for listening. This podcast has been brought to you by the Kirtan Mala Foundation. Krishnadas is renowned for leading Kirtan, the spiritual practice of chanting, and workshops around the world. For more information about him, including upcoming events, please visit krishnadas.com. K-R-I-S-H-N-A-D-A-S dot com. We also invite you to visit kirtanwalafoundation.org K-I-R-T-A-N-W-A-L-L-A-H foundation dot org. Here you will find more offerings dedicated to spreading the teachings of Neem Karoli Baba. Love everyone, serve everyone. Remember God. Ram Ram.